Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Violet Podcast, in which we'll be discussing the case of Shamima Begum, uh, what the British government has done to her, and the extent to which this is an isolated incident or part of a worrying trend. As always, we get sidetracked by discussions of human rights and various other things. I throw in a little anecdote about my grandfather, and Jerome consistently struggles to say the word eligible. We hope you enjoy the episode. Before we start the podcast properly, I should just point out a little terminology issue for listeners, which is that we spend a large part of today's podcast discussing a certain infamous terrorist group known by multiple names, either the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, or ISIL, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or ISIS, or simply Islamic State, uh, IS. Given that, as Barack Obama pointed out, the organisation was neither Islamic nor a state, uh, we will be avoiding that terminology and using the Arabic acronym for the group, which is Daesh. Um, We simply think that that's a more appropriate name, given that it is somewhat derogatory and doesn't provide the organisation with a level of legitimacy that we feel it does not deserve. But for those uh, who may not have heard that before, when we refer to Daesh, we mean uh, the so-called Islamic State. So, who is Shamima Begum and why was she having to appeal at the Supreme Court? So Shamima Begum was born and raised in East London uh, in Bethnal Green and at the age of 15 after being radicalised she travelled to Syria uh, to join Daesh or the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. Um, And there it's unclear exactly what activities she participated in uh, but there are reports of her stitching people into suicide vests uh, and of acting as an enforcer for the morality police of Daesh uh, in the cities that they had conquered. Um, several years later, she left the group and attempted to return to the UK. Um, and that's where we run into the, these series of court cases and government actions which have sought to prevent her from doing so. So at the time, the Home Secretary was Sajid Javid, uh, and Sajid Javid uh, removed Shamima Begum's citizenship, her British citizenship, uh, effectively making her then stateless so that she could not return to the UK. The court case that the Supreme Court decided on this week did not say that she can never return to the UK and can never regain her British citizenship. What it says is that she is not allowed to return to the UK in order to make that challenge personally in court. She is still permitted to make that challenge uh, and the courts will still hear it, but she cannot personally attend court in the UK uh, in order to make uh, that challenge. So the Supreme Court has effectively temporarily upheld the decision of the Home Secretary to strip her of her citizenship without any legal process. A lot of the debate around this particular case, certainly online, seems to focus around Shamima herself and what she may or may not have done in her time in Syria uh, and whether she deserves to have had her citizenship stripped or not. But what we want to focus on is more broadly whether the act of stripping of citizenship is an acceptable act by the government or not. Not necessarily in this case, but in more uh, more generally. Now, what makes this case particularly interesting is that 
the UK government has stripped citizenship from other UK citizens, but all of those were citizens of other countries as well. So they continued to be citizens of a country, just not the United Kingdom. The difference with Shamima Begum is that she was only a UK citizen. So now that she's had that uh, stripped from her, she is stateless. She is not a citizen of any particular country anywhere. She does not have the uh, rights or protections that that would afford to her. And wherever she goes, there is no country in the world in which she will be accepted as a citizen. I think it's worth pointing out that the Home Office made the argument that she could apply for and she was eligible for Bangladeshi citizenship uh, because in, uh, in terms of Bangladesh, if your parents were born there, you can apply for Bangladeshi citizenship. But it's not automatic. And uh, after her UK citizenship had been removed, Bangladesh stated that she would not be allowed to become a Bangladeshi citizen uh, and indeed that she would be put to death if she entered Bangladesh's borders. So for all intents and purposes, the Home Secretary's decision rendered her stateless, something which is illegal both according to UK and international law. I think this is something that a lot of people uh, reading about this story may not quite grasp because it's not something that you come across in everyday life because thankfully it's not very common to be stateless. But the seriousness of statelessness and the um, the seriousness with which it's been treated throughout 20th century history is massive. So um, certainly after World War II, uh, there was a big drive by the United Nations to try and end statelessness or try and put an end to statelessness, especially as following the war, uh, lots of states had sort of changed and moved borders and been created and whatever else. So um, it is an article of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights that everyone has a right to a nationality, um, and it has been officially uh, internationally illegal since 1961 for governments to make uh, any individual stateless. Because, barring um, some sort of special measure to rehome stateless refugees, uh, if you are stateless, if you do not have a nationality, if you do not have citizenship of any particular country, you have no right to live anywhere. Um, and so all of the other things that people think we have human rights to, all of the other um, benefits, whether sort of physical or intangible, that governments and countries are supposed to provide for us, their citizens, and all the protections they're supposed to give to us, are simply not available to someone who is stateless. And I guess even more fundamentally than that, the, the condition of statelessness means that you don't have a right to exist uh, because nationality or citizenship is what entitles you to be in a specific country or to live there or to exist there. Uh, and presently, Shamima Begum is stateless and can exist uh, in this Kurdish refugee camp in northern Syria because Syria is, is in a state of chaos and civil war. Uh, and so there isn't really an operating sovereign state in that region. But once the Syrian civil war is, is over, whether that takes years or decades, presumably the Syrian government would not want her on their territory either. Uh, and again, we run into the problem that she has nowhere where she can simply exist, even aside all other rights. I'm afraid we might be revealing our hand on our particular stance on this on this issue too quickly. Um, but one of the things that most depresses me about this story uh, is that I have a sort of personal connection to it in that after World War II, 
my grandparents were left stateless um, due to the non-existence of Ukraine having been absorbed into the Soviet Union. And it did take a while, but the British government was kind enough to offer them uh, citizenship. And in the years leading up to them gaining citizenship, they were allowed to live and work in the United Kingdom. Um, So it does definitely feel as if we've gone backwards on this issue. The government is now making people stateless rather than taking in stateless refugees and giving them citizenship. So at at this point, I think it's worth noting that a fundamental difference, Sajid Javid, the then Home Secretary, would point out between your grandfather and Shamima Begum is that your grandfather didn't join a terrorist group willingly, um, whereas Shamima Begum did. And therefore, the central part of the Home Secretary's argument for stripping her of her citizenship and making her stateless was that she posed a fundamental threat to Britain, uh, to security in Britain, to the safety of other British citizens, and that it was a case of prioritising the collective rights of the British public to life, liberty and safety over her right to citizenship. And there is certainly some evidence to support the idea that she would be uh, a threat to Britain if if returned here. Whilst uh, a member of Daesh in Syria, um, she was allegedly responsible, as we previously said, for stitching suicide bombers into their vests, uh, acting as an enforcer for the morality police in various interviews since. She's been very unremorseful about witnessing beheadings, uh, the the rape and massacre of Yazidi women, um, and has has effectively said that they deserved it for being enemies of, uh, of Islam or of Daesh. Clearly, this is an issue that gets very emotive very quickly. And part of the, or a large part of the problem with most of the discussion that certainly I've read about it is that it focuses around Shamima herself um, and her experiences and her crimes and whether she can be held culpable for those or not. And what we'd like to do is take a different look at it and say, well, that's not really the point. Uh, There are mitigating circumstances. She was a child. She was 15 when she left home and ran to um, Syria. But she did also go to support uh, and become part of a horrific terrorist group. Um, And there is no doubt that she is, in that sense, guilty. The question is about um, what punishment is appropriate Uh, and what punishment isn't appropriate, rather than um, her and anything personal about her in this particular case. So in more broad, generic terms, when we're thinking about crime and punishment, and what punishments are acceptable for what crimes, as far as the state's concerned, what do we need to keep in mind? I think the the first thing to consider in response to that is, what is the function uh, of state punishment? What is the function of the justice system. So this is by no means something which is uh, objectively true. It's based on moral value judgments. Uh, but there are two perspectives here. One is that the function of state punishment should simply be retribution. So to exact legal vengeance uh, on someone who has committed a crime. The other view is that justice should be more about prevention uh, or that the, the law should be more about prevention of crimes in the first place Uh, and about restoration and about creating the conditions such that crimes don't happen again in the future. 
I wouldn't want to completely strip agency away from individuals or from Shamima Begum in this instance because people do make their own choices. But people are also, to a large extent, a product of their social environments. And it must be remembered that Shamima Begum was born and raised in East London in Bethnal Green. She is fundamentally a product of uh, British or East London social political forces. That's where her radicalization happened. That's where she decided that she wanted to go abroad and join this horrific terrorist group. It's not a Bangladeshi problem. It's not something which is to do inherently with her ethnicity. Uh, her parents were both horrified and shocked at what she had done uh, and have disowned her. What she did was largely a product of the social environment in which she, she grew up. In that sense, no matter how serious the punishment that is exacted on her, it doesn't deal with the fundamental underlying issues which created Shamima Begum, uh, created the two other girls who decided to travel to Syria with her and will continue to create more people unless they are dealt with uh, on that on that basic level. Uh, also worth noting that although the UK has tried to push this off onto to Bangladesh as an issue, uh, or that some people seem to have suggested this is an ethnic issue, more volunteers have joined Daesh from the UK than they have from Bangladesh. Uh, this is the product of something that's happened in the UK, and real justice and an effective dealing with this problem requires us to think about what that is and how we deal with it going forwards, rather than latching onto her uh, as someone to be made an example of. Just to add to that last statistic, it's also worth noting that um, not only did the UK send more fighters to join Daesh than Bangladesh, Bangladesh's population is around three times larger than that of Britain. Uh, Bangladesh's population is also 90% Muslim, whereas the UK's population is only 6% Muslim. But I think you've articulated quite nicely there the central point of this podcast, which is that it is a responsibility of the state to deal with people who break the law. And the country is full of, it sounds a bit dystopian, but there are plenty of people who have committed awful, heinous criminal acts, arguably worse than Shemitah Begum's, right? There are plenty of mass murderers and rapists and whatever else who um, then go through the justice system and whatever the punishment meted out to them is, whatever the, uh, whether it's a sort of more rehabilitative uh, process whereby the state tries to get those people back into society in a safer way, or whether it is a case of, of locking them up for life um, or putting them in uh, solitary confinement or whatever. People who commit horrible acts who are British citizens are dealt with by the British justice system. And Shamima Begum is a criminal. She has done bad things and she needs to be put through that system in whatever way. But she is a British citizen. And denying her of her citizenship is, in, in the sort of coldest terms, before we even start to look at the humanity of this and the effect it will have on her, um, is completely ignoring the problem as far as the British government's concerned. She, as you said, is a British citizen who was socialised in Britain. The worldview that she has developed, as heinous as it is, is a British product. And by wiping their hands of her, the British government is brushing this issue under the carpet, which is their issue to deal with. 
and building on that, not only would I say are they brushing it under the carpet or ignoring it, but actively passing that problem on to other states or attempting to pass it on to other states. Um, in making her stateless, they've meant that she is effectively doomed to remain in this refugee camp in in northern Syria. She can't leave it. She can't go to other countries. It has now become a problem for Syrians or Kurds to deal with. And she is not in a prison camp. She's in a refugee camp with many other people who have fled Daesh uh, who, or who are victims of Daesh or, or of the Syrian government. And she's not in an environment where she can't spread her ideology or, or spread these poisonous thoughts. She's in an environment with other innocent people and refugees whom she is now affecting. I think a lot of people do, do argue that you know she left the country of her own free will. She shouldn't come back. She's no longer a problem. We don't have to deal with her. But equally, then, there is no good argument to say she should become the problem of the Syrians or the Kurds or the Bangladeshis. And most of those people who would make the argument she's not our problem, she left, she went somewhere else, it's the problem of wherever she is now, would not accept the reverse, i.e. someone coming here from another country, committing horrible crimes, and then that other country stripping them of their citizenship and dumping them on the UK as the UK's problem. That would not be acceptable. And equally, if a British criminal goes abroad, it is not acceptable for us to strip them of British citizenship and dump them on that other country. And that's not what happens. If someone, uh, if a British citizen moves to another country and uh, naturalises, so develops or earns or qualifies for citizenship of that other country, they don't then cease to become a British citizen, even if that country is one that Britain is even at war with. I don't think any uh, British Argentinians lost their British citizenship during the Falklands War, for example. Um, and even if they are a convicted criminal of fairly serious crimes, um, naturalising as a German citizen does not prevent you from being a British citizen too. So there's a very awkward and uncomfortable question that we have to head towards here, which is that the uh, the UK government's argument that she's uh, a serious, dangerous criminal, a terrorist indeed, and that she therefore uh, does not have the right to British citizenship, doesn't quite hold up when we consider the number of other terrorists <laughs> that there are, that there have been in this country, especially... Um, far-right or neo-Nazi terrorists rather than Islamist terrorists. Um, and one thing that listeners might not actually be aware of is that that is, by many measures, now a more serious problem. So both of us having been teachers, we've spent a lot of time uh, being trained by PREVENT, which is the government's anti-terrorism uh, I want to say service, but that's not really the right word, anti-terrorism program, um, which children uh, at school are often reported to if they, like Shamima Begum, start to display uh, sort of terrorist sympathies. And in the last two years, the number of referrals to prevent for far-right neo-Nazi terrorism among school children in the UK has significantly outnumbered the number of referrals for Islamist terrorism. But there has so far uh, not been an example of a far-right terrorist who has been stripped of their citizenship. At least um, 
we don't think so. I should point out at this point that uh, the government is actually very shady about the reasons behind denaturalisation, and I have found it impossible to find statistics on why uh, these people were denaturalised or who they were. But the fact that the government, um, with the exception of Shamima Begum, has only denaturalised people who hold uh, other passports and hold other citizenships means that those who've been denaturalised are only dual citizens of the UK and uh, somewhere else. And so far, the only rationale for denaturalisation by the British government is terrorism. So in very plain, uh, very frank terms, the question we have to ask ourselves is, to what extent is this due to the fact that Shamima Begum's parents are Bangladeshi? Or to put it even more bluntly, would this have happened to her if she was white? And the evidence seems to suggest, no, it wouldn't. Um, Last month, actually, a teenage boy who is, uh, for legal reasons, unnamed, was convicted of terror offences for disseminating terrorist documents and for downloading a lot of terrorist material, uh, including bomb-making manuals, uh, and discussing online with, uh, with other white supremacists, gassing Jewish people and hanging gays and shooting up uh, gay pride uh, and, and declaring a white jihad to, to, purify, uh, to purify the UK. Uh, and he has been convicted and uh, may be jailed, but there is no question of his citizenship being stripped away and him being made stateless. And it does seem to appear that there is effectively... Uh, directly or indirectly, a racial element to this decision to make Shamima stateless. To very, very tentatively argue with that, (laughs) I'm aware that I'm walking on eggshells here, Um, I would point out that there have been um, other terror, Islamist terror attacks in the UK um, for which citizenship has not been revoked. And so to some extent, this is um, a sort of a singling out of Shamima Begum and making an example of her. Um, the International Criminal Court at The Hague estimates that around 350 former uh, Daesh fighters have now returned to UK. That's former Daesh fighters who were UK citizens. Um, so it's worth noting that she is by no means the only person in this uh, particular predicament but she is the only person who's generated a huge amount of media interest, and she is the only person who's both had their citizenship of the UK stripped and then become stateless. So I guess what we can conclude from that is that the government has chosen to uh, make an example of Shamima Begum. Um, But actually, the example that this sets, or the sort of um, the message that this sends to a lot of UK citizens is actually a pretty horrible one. And I do think it sets quite a dangerous precedent that some people in the UK, uh, despite having been born in the UK, are effectively second-class citizens. Again, the argument that the Home Office made when depriving her of her British citizenship and making her stateless was that this was legal, they weren't making her stateless because she was eligible for citizenship in the country of her parents' birth, Bangladesh. Currently, there are about 9.5 million foreign-born people in the UK. Um, I'm not sure what percentage of them are adults, but I would wager at least half. All of those people's children are effectively second-class citizens, according to this government decision, 
and could be stripped of their British citizenship if they were eligible for citizenship in the country of their parents' birth. That's very worrying because most most countries in the world do extend citizenship or do offer citizenship uh, to children of people born there. Um, one example that springs to mind would be Israel, which goes much further than that and would extend the right to citizenship to any Jewish person anywhere in the world. So according to the precedent set by the government in this instance, any Jewish person could be stripped of their citizenship because they are eligible for citizenship in Israel. And I really hope that we don't have to explain to listeners that having a government that views uh, people who, despite the fact that they are UK citizens, they have a UK passport, and therefore the government has implicitly uh, promised to provide them with certain rights uh, and protections, that the UK government views people who haven't had that right in their family for long enough um, as being less worthy of it than people who have is an extremely worrying precedent. It's an extremely worrying position for them to take. I think the argument that might be opposed to that is that um, citizenship is only revoked or citizenship was only revoked in this particular case for a very extreme crime, right? The sort of uh, law and order conservative argument here would be that denaturalization is only for joining foreign terrorist groups. It's for very serious criminal activity and that um, sort of children of foreign-born UK residents don't have to worry about having their citizenship taken away because this is just the punishment for a particularly extreme crime. And if they don't commit a particularly extreme crime, then it's not going to be a problem for them. I think there are two counter-arguments to this. One is in terms of the effectiveness of the government decision, because the Home Secretary said this decision was made in order to protect British citizens from terrorism uh, and to make terror attacks in the UK less likely. The, the very existence of international terrorism shows that this is not the case. Uh, terrorists can come from anywhere in the world, can travel to anywhere in the world, uh, can radicalise people online and can cause violence across massive distances. It is, I think, much more likely that Shamima Begum would be able to radicalise other people, uh, to plan terror attacks, to attract other people to Daesh in Syria or in any kind of ungoverned territory than she would be under lock and key in a British prison uh, under the watch of the British government. Um, and the second issue, I think, is to do with the definition of what constitutes an extreme crime uh, for which such an extreme punishment could be levied. In this instance, the government made the decision without any legal process. They said she's a member of a terrorist group, therefore we can exact this punishment, we can render her stateless. Um, in the case of Shamima Begum, it is fairly uncontroversial that Daesh is a terrorist group. Everyone acknowledges that that's not, that's not really an issue. But if we leave it up to the government, unchecked by parliament, unchecked by the courts, uh, unchecked by any kind of due process or system to define what constitutes a terrorist group or, or an extreme group, then we are left in pretty dangerous territory. Most states in the world have at some point or other, through their military's actions, killed innocent civilians. And 
a government could therefore quite reasonably argue on the same lines that anyone leaving uh, to go to that state, to be a, a member of that state, to act in that state's government or military has joined an extreme group uh, and therefore should face the punishment of having their citizenship stripped away. So this is a particularly dangerous precedent to set because any group or any state or any body which has committed violence would fall under this bracket or could fall under this bracket uh, in a government's definition. But I don't think you actually need to go down that slippery slope um, argument line to conclude that the argument that I put forward a couple of minutes ago, uh, which I'll make clear is not my belief, um, is pretty reprehensible. Um, Simply because the rights that being a citizen of a particular country bestows on you should not be dependent on anything. The fundamental rights that we have as citizens should be the fundamental rights that we have as citizens. And even if such a thing doesn't happen, even if the government doesn't change its definition or weaken its definition of you know, what is worthy of denaturalization, even if it stays something that is only used in the most extreme of examples, um, the fact is that this is a punishment only available to people British citizens whose parents were not born in the UK and not others. It is a threat to them and not to others. It is a weakening of their citizenship compared to other people based on the fact that their parents were not born in the UK, which is uh, prejudice. It's preferential treatment based on effectively ethnicity, and that's not acceptable. And I think... It's also worth noting that over the last 20 years, I'm not exactly sure of the stats, the the threshold for denaturalisation has been lowered and therefore the British government has been increasingly or in uh, in increasing numbers stripping citizenship away um, from British citizens and denaturalising them uh, in these cases where they have other citizenships but still removing their British citizenship. Uh, And that that, that is a process that I think is quite worrying. Absolutely. So in 2005, the government changed the official wording of the law on um, when they are or are allowed to denaturalise someone. So previously, the threshold for denaturalisation was that the person in question had to be, quote, seriously prejudicial to the interests of the United Kingdom, unquote. Um, Since 2005, that wording has changed. And now the government simply has to show that denaturalizing that person would be, quote, conducive to the public good, unquote. And actually, uh, in 2014, they changed it again to allow for denaturalization in the case of um, potential statelessness, which we were saying is against international law and still is against international law, in cases where the person is eligible for nationality of another country. Note that doesn't mean has nationality of another country, that means eligible for. Um, So that change to the law does fit with the process you were talking about earlier of reducing the threshold for denaturalisation and neatly allows the government in legal, if not in moral grounds, to denaturalise Shamima Begum. In terms of the number of denaturalizations that have been happening, um, the UK has seen a significant rise uh, since then, with 
the highest uh, number of denaturalizations on record occurring in 2017 when the United Kingdom uh, denaturalized 104 people. Um, by contrast, in the last half decade, the Netherlands denaturalized 16 people, France denaturalized 16 people, and Belgium denaturalized 21. Um, all of which were countries that sent a similar number of fighters, certainly a similar number per capita, to um, Daesh. Um, there's there's two points to draw from this. Um, one is about the inviolability of human rights and who human rights should extend to. If if human rights or if rights, if liberties, if freedoms are are to mean anything then you have to extend them to people that you don't like as well as people that you do like. Otherwise, they're not particularly universal uh, and they don't really have the moral weight that you claim they do. Even if, for example, someone is a mass murderer uh, or, or a rapist, you would still afford them a fair free trial before any kind of punishment. And what's particularly worrying about what the government does in these instances is that there is no legal process and the government is also very opaque about the reasons uh, for the stripping of citizenship or denaturalization. Uh, it doesn't publish that information uh, and, and make it available to the public. So there is no real way to hold the government to account on this. Uh, we could trust them to always be acting benevolently, but a key part of a liberal democracy is being able to scrutinize the government and hold them to account. The second thing which I think is particularly worrying is the unchecked nature uh, of government power in this instance more generally. And the Supreme Court uh, in this instance ruled that the government um, should be respected. The government, the Home Secretary, was acting in the interests of the public and we just have to trust them and uh, we don't question the decision. Constitutionally, that's quite worrying because it seems like many of the checks and balances within the parliamentary system are being eroded. And it's worth reiterating the point that we made earlier that, certainly in our opinion, denaturalisation is not a responsible action from the government anyway, um, simply because terrorism is an international problem. And by denaturalising uh, terrorists... The UK government is in no way dealing with the problem. It's denying that the problem is its own responsibility to deal with, and it's forcing that problem onto other countries by declaring these people not to be British citizens and pushing them out into other countries. When, as British citizens, the uh, process that they've gone through to develop those beliefs have come from British society and reflect problems within British society and sending them away is not just selfish and irresponsible by pushing that problem onto other governments and other countries and pushing those dangerous people into other countries. Simply sending these people out of the country is not helping to deal with the problems that exist within the country that created those people in the first place. A, a devil's advocate argument, which I absolutely do not agree with, just to clarify, is that although these people grew up in the UK, they are not truly British, uh, and that there is something about their ethnicity or their religion which makes them different, uh, and therefore it's entirely warranted to denaturalise them, because denaturalising these citizens uh, and returning them to 
where they came from uh, in, in quote marks is is the way to deal with the issue this is firstly morally reprehensible and secondly um, ineffective it's morally reprehensible because as we've said on this podcast many times and as we've said in many of our articles it's completely wrong to, to paint a group as culpable for the actions of individuals and secondly it's ineffective because the conflation of ethnicity or religion with nationality plays into the hands of uh, those who would advocate for terrorist acts the very worldview of Daesh is based on a dichotomy a black and white distinction between us and them uh, the righteous and those who who need to be who need to be saved or converted um, or or to die and to say to people of non-english ethnicity you have second class citizenship uh, you are worth less you can be denaturalized is to is to accept that paradigm and to accept very much Daesh's worldview. And to even further that point, the argument that I suppose the government will put forward is that this is only um, the case for terrorism. Denaturalisation is only a threat for terrorism. But as we've talked about, it seems to be that denaturalisation is the threat for Islamic terrorism and not uh, other forms of terrorism. And what, what I think the government needs to realise is that treating what it sees as sort of homegrown British terrorism, that is far-right neo-Nazi terrorism, as, uh, as a British problem and something for it to deal with, and seeing Islamic terrorism as not a British problem and something to be pushed off onto other, onto Muslim countries, is in effect denying the existence of British Muslims, is, is denying the fact that 6% of the British population is Muslim, that the religious makeup of countries changes over time, and Britain is now um, a partly Muslim country, and that is the way it is, and that we have to accept that. That's not a problem, that is just a change over time, and that terrorism that arises in Britain is a British problem, whether it's uh, Nazi terrorism, whether it's Islamic terrorism, whether it's um, environmental terrorism, whether it's animal rights terrorism, if it's terrorism that uh, originates in Britain, it's a British problem, and it's up to the British government and British society. I should say that we shouldn't pass the entire responsibility of this onto the government um, to deal with that and to come to some sort of solution. So this has been a particularly wide-ranging uh, discussion on what might seem quite an abstract uh, topic. And I think one of the difficulties in this discussion and in this issue is that it's a very emotive one. And usually when we have emotive uh, issues, people forget their principles and forget their allegiance to constitutional or moral or legal ideas. And it's very much the same as the concept of a, a free and fair trial. No matter how bad you think a person's crime has been, they are still afforded that right uh, as a matter of constitutional and moral and legal principle. And in the case of denaturalization, we would also make the argument that that is a constitutional, or that there is a constitutional, legal, moral right to citizenship, uh, and that in, these in, in this instance, we shouldn't become too emotive and fail to see that, and fail to remember that. As I said before, the central point here is that rights really only matter if you extend them to everyone, uh, 
including people you don't like and not just those that you feel an affinity with or approve of. And the UK government's actions in this instance are particularly worrying because they go beyond that moral, legal, constitutional pale. We hope you've enjoyed this week's episodes. If you have any questions, comments, ideas for future podcasts, then you can email us at contact.theviolet at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter with the handle at underscore theviolet underscore, or you can visit our website, theviolet.net. See you next time.